You're listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from RAND. I'm Deanna Lee. And I'm Evan Banks. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from RAND's latest research and commentary. It's February 23rd. Tomorrow marks two years since Russia launched its full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Several recent developments have thrown the perils of the war into sharp relief, including new territorial gains by Russia and uncertainty about the future of U.S. aid to Ukraine. Overall, the conflict has underscored the threat that Russia poses to its neighbors, and presents challenges to security and stability both in the region and beyond. In a new Q&A on RAND.org, 10 of our researchers weigh in on many important issues, including how the war has evolved and where it may be headed, what Ukraine can expect from the United States and the West, the continued risk of escalation by Moscow, and much more. Here are some highlights. Senior defense analyst Marta Kepe looked back at what's changed in this conflict. Quote, Over the last year, the war has turned into a grinding war of attrition. Both sides have experienced various problems, from logistics and sustainment to almost inescapable surveillance by the other side. Anne Daly, a policy researcher who focuses on geopolitical strategy, added that this year will be decisive not just because of what happens on the battlefield, but because 64 countries, including the United States, will go to the polls, and that could affect the aid Ukraine receives. On the question of U.S. aid to Ukraine, all of our experts emphasized its importance. Rand Europe's James Black said, quote, A suspension of U.S. aid to Ukraine would be a huge victory for Russia, a fillip to China, a potentially fatal blow to Ukraine, and a seismic shock to the credibility and cohesion of the NATO alliance. Not to mention calling into question the supposed leadership and democratic values of the United States in the eyes of the world. Christina Holinska of the Party Rand Graduate School discussed the ongoing refugee crisis. Millions of Ukrainians remain displaced either internally or abroad, and whether or not they return will be based on many factors. But, Holinska said, if Ukraine wants to rebuild as a democracy with a prosperous economy, the ability to convince highly educated and entrepreneurial Ukrainian refugees to return might be crucial. When asked if Western sanctions against Russia are working, senior economist Howard Schatz said that they are having an effect, but certainly not as big as hoped. Quote, Russia is undertaking an enormous rise in spending to pay for its war, with the federal budget deficit in 2023 the third highest level ever. And, as Schatz told CNN this week, Russia is taxing its people to pay for the war. This is just a sampling of what some of our experts had to say. You can find the full Q&A on rand.org. Or follow us on social media to see more of these insights from our researchers. More than 40% of Americans, approximately 125 million people, personally know at least one person who has died of a drug overdose. 
and about one-third of those individuals say that their lives were disrupted as a result. That's according to a new RAND study published earlier this week. Notably, rates of exposure to an overdose death were significantly higher in New England and in certain states in the American South than in other parts of the country. These harrowing numbers highlight the experiences of people who have been left behind by fatal overdoses, a group that has largely been overlooked in the response to America's overdose crisis. As lead author Allison Athey told NPR's Up First yesterday, quote, This type of bereavement is creating vicious circles within communities, where there's a death that spurs suffering, that spurs more death, that spurs more suffering. And as Athey told USA Today, the stigma that society attaches to substance use disorder can make it even more difficult for loved ones who are left behind after a fatal overdose. Quote, the type of grief that people experience after this particular kind of loss can be really, really intense, she says. It can impact their functioning and make it harder for them to get through their day-to-day life. And because of the stigma associated with overdose, it may be harder for people to deal with this type of grief. Athey and co-authors say that this problem needs more attention. One potential area of further study is a parallel line of research that is focused on those left behind by suicide to understand the impact that an overdose loss may have on those who have experienced it. In the latest development in its war with Hamas, Israel has promised to launch a ground invasion of Rafah, Gaza's southernmost city, unless Hamas releases its remaining hostages. With an estimated 1.5 million people sheltering in Rafah, there are deep concerns about the welfare of Palestinian civilians. Writing in Foreign Affairs last week, Rand's Raphael Cohen says that Israel must assume responsibility for the well-being of Gazans, quote, if not on moral grounds, then on strategic ones. If Israel intends to achieve its objective of eliminating Hamas, then it must, quote, take a big, tangible, and public step in its war strategy to show that it indeed cares about Gaza's civilian population. Establishing safe zones in areas already cleared of Hamas militants in northern Gaza is one place to start. Such a move, of course, would be challenging, but it would be worth taking on. Israel also needs to substantially expand humanitarian aid in Gaza. If Hamas is intercepting aid convoys, as Israel claims, then Israel should either have its army units protect those aid convoys or provide aid directly to the population. Finally, Israel must offer some sort of vision for what will happen to Gaza after the war. And it should offer that vision now, Cohen says. Such planning is operationally necessary to avoid the kinds of troubles that befell the U.S. in Afghanistan and Iraq following the invasion of those countries and the toppling of their regimes. But it is diplomatically necessary, too. A public post-war plan is essential to showing both the Palestinians and the world at large that Israel does not plan to evict Gazans from the Strip when the fighting stops. In a new study, RAND researchers took a secret shopper approach to better understand the availability of telehealth services for mental health care. 
Posing as patients, they called nearly 2,000 clinics on the phone and sought to make telehealth appointments for various mental health conditions. They found that telehealth availability varies significantly across states. In Mississippi and South Carolina, for example, less than half of mental health facilities offered telehealth services. In some states, such as Maine and Oregon, telehealth was available at every facility our researchers contacted. Further, the types of services offered and the types of telehealth modalities available also varied widely among clinics, with roughly one in four clinics not offering virtual medication management and about one in three not offering virtual diagnostic services. It's also worth noting that despite repeated calls to some clinics, our researchers were not able to speak to anyone at one in five facilities they contacted. This suggests that many people may have trouble reaching a clinic to inquire about mental health care services. Of the facilities successfully contacted, the median wait time for a telehealth appointment was just over two weeks, with significant geographic variation ranging from more than two months at mental health clinics in Maine to four days at clinics in North Carolina. These findings are important because while telehealth use has returned to near-pre-pandemic levels in most fields of medicine, it remains much higher than pre-pandemic levels in mental health care. And a better understanding of the availability of telehealth can help inform policies that maximize the potential benefits for patients seeking mental health support. Suicide is the second leading cause of death among American youth between the ages of 10 and 14. School administrators, faced with daunting funding and staffing shortages, are increasingly turning to technology for help addressing this crisis. In fact, many schools are using AI-based software to track students' use of school computers to identify potential mental health challenges. RAND researchers recently interviewed educators and parents and reviewed the existing evidence to better understand the risks and benefits of this software. What they found was that AI-based monitoring might well give rise to more problems than what it seeks to solve. To start, monitoring students in this way poses threats to their privacy. Because the software runs while students use their school-issued computing devices and accounts, It has the potential to collect large amounts of data about their lives. Adding to this privacy risk, families may find it difficult to opt out of using the software. Across many school districts, families are required to consent to AI-based monitoring as a precondition of even using school-issued computers. If families opt out of monitoring, then they must provide their own computer for school use, and many families can't afford to do that. There are also concerns that using AI-based algorithms to identify at-risk students could exacerbate inequalities. For example, there have been reports that internet searches by LGBTQ students have been flagged at disproportionate rates by AI software. These kids' activities may then be brought to the attention of school officials, involuntarily outing them. And while it's the AI software that flags kids who may be at risk, it's the schools that then decide how to respond. This could lead to misuse. 
For example, in one case, a teacher revealed to our researchers that a student experiencing a mental health challenge was suspended from school, rather than being routed to a counselor or other professional to get help. Finally, it remains unclear whether these tools can accurately detect suicide risk in students. So far, no studies have followed up with the students these programs have flagged as at risk for suicide to see if they actually were at risk or not. Ultimate student outcomes are also not documented. This lack of evidence means that it's not clear that the benefits of the software outweigh the risks we found in our research. If school districts continue to use their budgets to deploy AI-based tools for suicide risk detection, then it's important to address these issues. And more regulation is needed on the federal, state, and local levels to ensure that safeguards are in place to protect students. Otherwise, this software, which is designed to improve students' mental health outcomes, may end up doing more harm than good. That's it for this week's episode. If you'd like to learn more about what we discussed today, check out the show notes at rand.org slash podcast. We'll see you next week. RAND is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis.